Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. I'm joining you live from the residence of Dr. Bruce Garrick for a change, uh, where we are going to be talking about our weekend of wargaming. Hello, um, I'm Bruce Garrick, and I have Monk the Cat, who would like to join us here. Yeah, uh, apologies in advance. If you hear little cat noises, if you hear a glass of nice scotch suddenly falling to the ground uh, and the shattering of glass and ice cubes, uh, that might be due to Monk the Cat, who, among his other hobbies, uh, is also laying waste to board games yes. uh, take are, that are painstakingly set up. Uh, so that has been one little challenge to our to our weekend of wargaming. Uh, but overall, I would have to say it's been a wildly successful war, uh, weekend of wargaming, and I think... A big part of that goes uh, is is down to a particular game that we played this afternoon, Bruce. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> Rob, you uh, you told me that you were coming to uh, North Carolina and that you had this, an assignment and uh, you wanted to spend some time on the weekend before your assignment uh, playing some meaty war games. And when I asked you uh, what you wanted to play, uh, you did mention that you wanted to play a coin game. So we did put one of those on the list, and we'll talk about that. But um, there was another game that uh, I wanted to play, which was Empire of the Sun, which is Mark Herman's uh, board game about the Pacific War. But at the last second, we actually got um, a friend of mine, uh, Don, from, uh, from Chapel Hill. He came to, um, uh, to join us. It was great. We played uh, both days with Don. And the, the second day, um, I thought, well, I've got a three-player board game. We've already played Churchill, or at least Don and I have played Churchill. But there's this game that neither of us has played called Triumph and Tragedy. Um, Rob, have you ever heard of this game? Is this, is this something that uh, you knew about or first time you heard about it from me? No, I mean, I had absolutely never heard of it. And, I mean, that's not unusual for me uh, with with board war games. It's not a space I follow particularly clo- closely. But, you know, I do hear about, like, when there's a new coin game, I'm certainly aware of it. There's a lot of, like, when GMT has a popular new release, I, I'm usually familiar with it by name uh, before, before I ever encounter it in the wild. This one was a complete unknown uh to me not even a known unknown yeah. uh as, as unknown, Mr. Rumsfeld. unknown yeah it was it was one of those dangerous unknown unknowns uh and i was never sure what to what to make of it uh and i think it's worth mentioning here as well uh y- your friend don joining us introduced a something i worried would be a complication right because most war gaming i've ever done mm-hmm. is head-to-head right and a lot of war games even if they claim to maybe seat four don't always necessarily seat more than more than two people mm-hmm. uh, very easily. Mm-hmm. And three people is a weird number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet I think this with this game in particular, it worked magnificently. Oh, it, it's it's uh, it's a, it's an odd number, but there are more and more games, it seems, that uh, are really hitting this, this weird number. And I, I had a great time. I'm so glad Don could join us. Um, the thing about this game is, it came out last year, uh, and it's designed by a guy named Craig Besink. And uh, for anybody who listens to my Wild Weasel podcast, uh, Craig Besink's game Rommel in the Desert uh, is a game that made my number five war games of all. It was my number five war game of all time. I had uh, I actually did a top ten. Uh, I started out with a top five, and that was number five. Uh, that is a game about the uh, North Africa campaign, and it's a block game. And I don't really enjoy block games, um, but Rommel in the Desert does such a great job of being very it's it's an abstracted game but it captures the supply system so perfectly that um you almost don't notice it's a block game and it it really i think the people who enjoy north africa games uh, there is i mean not everybody likes obviously not uh not 
nobody likes everything, but um, but the uh, the people who play North Africa games, there's a, there's a there's a, a, a large group of people who feel this is one of the best North Africa games ever designed. So you know. I, I heard about the Triumph and Tragedy thing. You know, that's a that's a Winston that's one of Winston Churchill's uh, books. Um, but uh, the game is about strategic European warfare, European theater warfare, World War II. Um, and I, got, I have to say, I'm I'm kind of done with that. I, I feel like I've played I played so much Third Reich when I was a when I was younger, and um, you know, I'm not a big World in Flames guy. Although that's that's really a that's really a um, uh, a two theater game, Total or Krieg, all these, all these games. I, I, let's just put it this way. I didn't really, I wasn't looking for another European theater game. I felt like there's so many other things I could, I could buy. Um, and I got it on the very tail end. And when I saw it said, and I, I didn't know much about it. And I said, Oh, Craig, the sinks design. Okay. I'll, I'll just throw in on this. Um, just, they were, I think they were already shipping. Um, and interestingly enough, the game is now uh, out of print. It, the first print run sold out, and uh, they're they're going about the second printing. But um, I, I didn't. It, it wasn't a game that I really thought about pulling out. You know, I, Churchill had a lot of. There, there was a lot of hoopla behind Churchill, and, and for good reason. I mean, it's a it's a very interesting design. Um, uh, really inventive. Uh, Mark Herman obviously is a, is a tremendous designer, and so and I played it. And I thought Churchill was great. And I just never really thought, you know, Triumph and Tragedy just sat on the shelf and um, never really thought to pull it out. And when Don said that he could come play, I thought, well, rather than having two people play Empire of the Sun and have one person sit in kibitz, why not just play a three-player game? And so we pulled out uh, Triumph and Tragedy. And holy cow, um, what happened? So there's a couple things there that I that I want to dig into. Uh, first, just for people who, who aren't familiar with it, when we say something's a block game, we're, we're generally talking about they're, they're games with you're pl- you're playing them with wooden blocks and, instead of like traditional cardboard counters. But I sense that's become shorthand for for a broader family of concepts in in, in wargaming. Uh, and I'm curious, like you know, when someone who's who's deeply in that scene starts saying, "Well, that, yeah, it's a block game," what what what's shorthand? What do you what are you saying when you call something a block game? Okay, so for me, a block game means two things. Block game, well, block games mean hidden information because that's why you have blocks. Um, otherwise, so they can stand on end. Right. And, they, they yeah. yes. You see. You, so for for the you have a a square uh, block that's uh, you know obviously. Um, uh, it's not a cube; it's a block. So, with one one side is the the, the thickness is is it's it's thinner than the than the width, um, but it does stand on its end. And you have a um, a, a sticker that you have to stick on yourself uh, that that uh, represents the type of unit. And each uh, each edge of the block represents a different level of strength. So there might be three or four pips on a sticker, and the one that's pointing up is the one that is active so you know you might have a four strength then you turn it to lose us to lose a strength point that's three two one and then you remove it um so so there are two things there one is that the the there's a hidden information element but the other thing that i think bothers people more is that the abstraction of the units because there's no ability to differentiate between you know attack strength defense strength um you know Movement factor, yes, you, but but it's only by type of unit. Um, you know, everything is everything is very unit type oriented. So you know that you're not going to be able to get into niceties of, you know, uh, you know German armor versus American armor versus Russian armor or things like that. I mean, you can make rules for them, but 
but the but generally also with the um with the uh block system is the is a mechanic that's that's known as bag of dice and bag of dice is a is a mechanic that uh, i actually talked to mark herman um recently on wild weasley he said it was actually his least favorite mechanic um bag of dice means that you basically have a very number, varying number of dice um, that you roll, and then you basically get hits. Uh, if anybody played Titan, Titan is the quintessential bag of dice game. But um, it sort of allows for sort of the vagaries of the probability curve to manifest themselves in a way that Mark always said. Mark said in his uh, in his interview that um, there is a there is a quality to quantity that the bag of dice does not deliver. Um, so, you know, for wargamers, you are, you're taking something and you're making it abstract in the sense that you're, you're, you're flattening out the, the sort of the differentiation landscape, and then you're introducing a very, uh, very uneven, random uh, resolution element in bag of dice— it, it kind of feels like a. It just feels like a lighter thing. It's it's. Uh, it doesn't satisfy as one as one of my readers said. You, it doesn't satisfy your inner grognard. So the other, the other thing I wanted to dig into a little bit before we start talking about this game in particular, because uh, I think the pleasant surprise this game uh, ended up being was, was tied to this. We were both a little skeptical of a strategic level war game. Uh, a little bit, a strategic level World War II game, and I'm curious, like for for you, where does that feeling of of, of ennui come from? Like what, what, like what, like what is it about like covering World War II at that level uh, that that kind of put you off a little bit before we started playing this? Well, I mean, World War II at that level becomes it's sort of it can become very deterministic mm-hmm. because you know you have a you have a historical you know a lot of games. Third Reich, for example, you have this, uh, you know, you have a free declaration of war as the Germans against uh, against Poland. And then there's so, sort of um, a sort of known openings, blah, blah, blah. You can you can sort of you, you can. You can min max certain opening if you if you if you put players in this particular situation even though it's a strategic level game, your op- your your options and opportunities are kind of limited, right? I mean, you you're gonna have to invade France. You're gonna ha- you have to invade Poland. You're gonna have to invade France, and then everything kind of goes along the same way. And and maybe there maybe there's some some weird uh, weird variant where you know you don't invade Yugoslavia, or you know maybe you invade uh, you know Sweden as well as Norway. But it's 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 really. There's not a lot of ways to make plausible alternate history with this if you do certain things, one of which is start in 1939, which this game actually doesn't do. This game starts in 1936, which I think actually makes a huge difference. Yeah. um, This is something, so I think this this actually ends up dovetailing with uh, my my various uh, recent historical readings Hmm. as well that uh, have have partly been underwritten by the the Bruce Garrick uh, Institute for War, (laughs) uh, which is that I've been been trying to sort of read about the history of of World War II in particular, trying to get beyond uh, just the American-centric narrative, Mm -hmm. uh, which tends to focus on a couple key dates pretty late in the war, actually, where there isn't any more political flexibility, right? Like, and that does make it feel very deterministic. Mm-hmm. But what, what gets lost in that 
is following World War One and up to the outbreak of World War Two, uh, Europe's incredibly dynamic. There's a lot of places that are sort of balanced on this knife knife's edge, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, who's going to align with who? Uh, where yeah. is democracy going to take root? Where right. is fascism? Where is communism? Uh, and so this starts in 1936. So it's not going to cover all of the all of the political disorder sure. of the 20s and early 30s but it's going to it is going to cover the 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 fact that by the mid 30s now you have three major movements in Europe political movements right. uh they're crossing international boundaries creating the this tripartite division mm-hmm. of uh, of power blocks right. really and that made it feel so incredibly fresh yeah. actually it it felt like it felt absolutely like it felt like a Cold War game, uh, to be honest, right? It, it felt like a Cold War game, mm-hmm. except it was three-sided, which right. was fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, there's a lot of things to be said for starting a game uh, before Munich. Because, you know, by the time you get to Munich, you sort of – the die is sort of cast, right? I mean, the 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 Western democracies have sort of backed down, and and uh, the Germans have been uh, have been allowed to, to, um, to develop their military, and it's sort of the war is inevitable, but – um, and, and it kind of locks people into position. Um, 1936, uh, Spanish Civil War. Um, it's it's still. I mean, y- y- obviously, you could you could have a game that started in 1918 and then have the development of you know how Germany developed and maybe there wouldn't have been a Nazi party. That would have been an interesting yeah uh, an interesting game itself. The thing that I I I'm really I'm really fascinated by is how designers go about setting the stage for for the game to take different plausible alternatives and that's that's the other thing that that bothers me about strategic uh european theater games is that uh i don't know if you remember a game called um uh clash of steel i just know the name okay so clash of steel was a was a game gosh i can't remember who published it um i think it was was it microprose i can't remember um but it was a very uh it was a very popular game, and I really enjoyed it. I played the heck out of it. Uh, in uh, gosh, when was Clash of Steel? Gosh, it was nineteen. 19- I should have looked this up before the show. It just came, just came to me, but it was I think it was in the nineteen nineties, um, maybe maybe around the time of Gary Grigsby's War in Russia. But it was a it was a strategic level European theater game, and you um, you uh, had you know art uh, infantry tanks aircraft and you fought out the war um the actually the optimal strategy in that game was what we called the uh the counterclockwise strategy where you basically started you you, as germany you conquered france and then you conquered spain and then you kind of just drove into north africa and then drove through north africa up into into the uh in the suez canal uh and then into persia and it's kind of a funny game um that that was kind of the optimal way to play of course it was against the ai so you know you can do a lot of funny things against the ai but that's just that's complete fantasy and the thing that bothers me about games that allow for um for alternate history is often the alternate history is implausible and what i what i like is games that if you play them if you play them historically they play uh they play they play historically Right, so the, the 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 historical play generates a historical outcome, and then one thing that Don had mentioned when we were talking about is that the other thing, his other other um, criterion, is that the uh, the alternate history is plausible alternate history. I can't speak to the second part of that, but I felt that the first part of that 
was pretty well captured in this game. Yeah, and so the way this all works, and and this is part of of why I ended up loving this game so much, everything is very tied together, right? It's one of Mm -hmm. those things where you can can discuss all these discrete aspects of Mm -hmm. the game, Mm -hmm. but they're so perfectly tied to the way resources work in this game Mm -hmm. that... In addition to the the sort of the clear decisions you have to make on the uh, on the on the uh, like ser- service level, each of those decisions also has a pretty significant list of opportunity costs that that you know tie into other mechanics in the game. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but I think it's easier to sort of tackle this from that 1936 starting date where mm-hmm. you're not really fighting a war yet. Probably, right. uh, what what you're doing is you're trying to mobilize both economically and diplomatically for war. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the way this works is every every side is dealt a pretty hefty hand of cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Germans have a lot of cards. Right. But there are pretty strict hand limits in this game. And so that first turn for the Germans is really sort of a nod to them sort of being the most dynamic actor sure. of the time. They're the ones who the history is on their side, uh, the wind is at their back, and they can start making big moves right away. Mm-hmm. But there are two types of cards. Um, there are investment cards that allow you to research technologies mm-hmm. and build up uh, build up your industrial base. And your industrial base is what gives you basically action points, uh, strength points uh, that you can use to spend on new units or buying new cards for your hand. Right. Uh, and, you, and it's all one-to-one, so deploying a unit costs one industry point. Right, that's one fewer card you're going to have. Right, getting a getting an investment card, one point. Getting an action card is one point. Now, the action cards are interesting, and, and in this phase we'll just talk about their diplomatic value, because each action card has two flags on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has two countries on it, and so early in the game, each faction can start playing cards from its hand and exerting influence uh in a certain region it's like a very it's like a very stripped down uh twilight struggle Mm -hmm. almost yep uh and so each side you're you're going around each side can sort of see who's bidding on what country basically and who's who's sinking uh resources into trying to bring country on side and yeah there's this tug of war but if somebody gets three influence points on a country at the end of the turn Yes. So you can you can still you can battle back and forth. So you can see people can see, oh, he's got three. I'm gonna go yeah. play something on that, or there are special events where you can, you know, remove enemy influence, that kind of thing. But if at the end of the turn the a player has three influence points, then that basically becomes their country forever. Yep. It's it's join the alliance, it's picked aside. And it can't it's not gonna move from that. Mm-hmm. So in that early phase, you've got people both like trying to figure out where's their power base going to be. Right. Uh, and there's this interesting, like, because nobody knows what the shape of the game is going to be. That's the thing. Like, e- like even now I know you're at home listening to this thinking, like, okay, well, it's World War II. Not necessarily. Right. It is just as plausible in this game that the USSR and the British Commonwealth will end up at each other, well, the Western allies will end up at each other's throats, and Germany will be a bystander, almost. So none of this is really set in stone. There's certain things that are more more likely, but you really don't know necessarily who your enemy is going to be. You don't know what World War II is actually going to look like. And so on that first turn, I found myself thinking like, 
boy, everyone's ignoring Spain. I think I could really just sort of build a power base uh, in Latin America and, and Portugal and, and, and Spain. Uh, but then I see people starting to invest in, in Scandinavia. And I'm like, well, I can't let them do that either. And so it's this interesting, like, you're, you're, you're trying to suss out, like, who your rival's going to be. Right. There's, there's this interesting sort of idea that, you know, I think the game, the, the idea that the game states is that there are these three systems, democracy, communism, and fascism. And none of them like each other. Right. And if the, you know, the Nazi Soviet pact had had not broken down for, you know, selfish reasons, obviously those systems were going to come to to blows anyway. But uh, the point is that while fascism was, you know, a loathsome system, communism wasn't far behind. And the um, the idea that Democracy and, and communism somehow were going to be necessarily allied does not play out yet depending on how these powers decide that they're going to try to achieve supremacy. And so there is a little bit of, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, of, of uh, silliness. I mean, you're, you're, um, you know, you're playing these cards where it's, you know, it's equally likely for the, um, for the, uh, the low countries to become, you know, German allies as it is for them to become, al- you know, allies. Which is the, preposterous. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of silly. And yeah, of course, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, Sweden could join the Axis. I mean, there's, there, you have to sort of say that for the purposes of this game design, these details, you have to accept the, de- it's, it's like poetic license, right? You accept the details for the overall, for the way that things turn out. I think the way that things turn out is, 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 is very interesting um, so there's this initial period where, you know, so you're buying, you're buying cards. This is, this is, this is fascinating to me. So the way that, uh, Craig made the production system work is that you have three levels of production. There's resources, there's population, and there is, uh, industry. And I think thematically, it just, it makes a lot of sense. So you're limited. It's like Agricola, right? You're limited by your least numerous or your, the, the, the level of your lowest, uh, element is the thing that limits you. So you have, but when you're at peace, you don't count resources. And I think that the logic there is that if you're at peace, then everybody, it's just world trade, right? So if you don't have enough iron ore, you'll just buy it from somebody and, you know, I get it that way. But you still have, you have to have the workers and you have to have the factories. Then once war starts and markets get closed off to you, resources become important and those resources can become a limiting factor and so that you have to go find those resources militarily and those resources buy everything or the resources the 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 production let's call it production so it's it's the lowest of resources population or industry once you're at war it's just industry lowest of population or industry when when you're at peace and that number determines how many uh action cards you buy how many uh, technology. So basically, um, what, what are they called? Um, uh, what's the, it's, it's the production deck or something like investment. that investment. That's right. Sorry. It's the investment deck, the action deck, uh, and buying units. So you can put your production into, uh, researching technology. You can put your production into, um, sort of either, uh, diplomacy or the, the action cards also allow you to move units, uh, or you can just put them in, into uh, building an army. That's big. And I think that the balance here is that you're, you have a three-player game going on, and the, uh, the game actually comes with some, some uh, like a ledger-like uh, 
you know, sheet that shouldn't scare you off. It's actually very straightforward, but what it does is it, it shows you, you're, you're encouraged to write down how, who spent what, how much on what. And uh, the issue there is that, you know, if I, it's, it's, it's a classic, you know, um, you know, rush boom turtle thing, right? You have, um, you might may decide that your, uh, your opponent has been spending a lot too much, a lot of, uh, points on technology and diplomacy and their army is stagnating. So all of a sudden you're like, okay, you know what, for the, for the, this next year, I'm going to put all my points into production, uh, to build units and build up units. And I know that I'm going to be, you know, this year I'm going to be 10 points ahead of him. And next year, next year, maybe I'll be, uh, you know, 10 points ahead of him. That means I have 20 extra points and in, in a, in a bag of dice, that means you're rolling 20 extra dice. So then you decide, oh, you know, I'm going to attack this guy if I can get an advantage on him. So the other guy's strategy is like, oh, well, gosh, he's he's building up his army. I better build up my army, which means that somebody else, uh, you know, they, they, they there's 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 ways of playing, you know, two ends against the middle. It's a three-player game. Uh, dynamics fantastic. And then when the war starts, you have different priorities because eventually these countries that you're that you were playing diplomacy on are going to get invaded, so they're going to choose sides. So those diplomacy cards become less useful, um, and so you're going to start using those action cards for actually moving your units. And they have, there's a fascinating. This is something. Once again, I, I I'll say this so many times that I know I'm not a game designer because I see these mechanisms and think I could never have thought of that. But um, but the way this works is. These action cards also have um, seasons and letters and numbers printed on them. And so if you buy action cards, it, there, there are basically three seasons. There's a, there's a fourth season winner, which only uh, really matters when you're fighting in the Soviet Union, which we didn't do actually in this game. But um, you have spring, summer, fall, and then you have a letter, and then you have a number. And spring, summer, or fall is the season in which that card is valid, the letter is the priority, and the number is the number of units you can move. So a uh, a letter that says, you know, C takes uh, priority over D, E, F, etc. A, B take priority over C. And the number is the number of units you can activate. So that means that generally the letters closer to the beginning of the alphabet have lower numbers. So it's kind of like I'm mobilizing faster but I have fewer units. If I want to move later in the turn, I might be able to move 12, whereas if I move at the beginning of the turn, I only maybe move six units. But uh, but which is which is better for me? And sometimes you might not have a choice because you didn't draw an appropriate card. So um, these things are, um, are, are really interestingly integrated into the whole system. You bid, actually. What you do is each spring, summer, and fall, everybody bids. They, they take a card and they decide, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it face down on the table. Everybody chooses a card, and then you know you can pass. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to choose a card, and then you reveal your card, and the the player who has the um, the letter closest to the beginning of the alphabet gets to go first, and he has that he or she has that many activations, and then the next person goes. And there's some interesting rules for how units. It's it's an area movement game, so you're moving from area to area. There there are rules for how many units uh, can occur. The terrain effects are are beautifully. Uh, encapsulated just by the borders, like if you can only move one unit into a battle across a mountain border, you can move only two units across a river or through the woods, three across in the plains for, across each border, right? So uh, uh, if you're if you're attacking a, a space from two different uh, areas across, across two different plains borders, that means you can move six in at one time. Aircraft 
don't count against the border limit. Um, it's just a lot of very elegant stuff. Then, of course, once all your units are in there, then then you start counting the dice. Their priorities: air fires before tanks, who right. fire before our, you know infantry. And that's the kind of I gotta say that's the that's the kind of grognard turnoff that the game has. I think had for me in theory. I, w- I would read the rules and think, oh gosh. So fine, I roll six dice for the tanks, and then I roll five dice for the infantry. Yeah. And it, I mean, if the game were less cleverly designed, then yes, I would. I would think this is you know this is a waste of my time. I, well, not it's a waste of my time. Sorry, I shouldn't. I, that's a kind of a value judgment. It's something that doesn't interest me uh, because I am a grognard and I kind of like fiddly things with with uh, you know in, a lot of very involved systems. Um, but this system, the this system is very involved in a um, sort of conceptual way um, because you have these techs that you buy in a separate deck. Okay, so the deck the deck that controls the techs is different from the deck that controls the diplomacy and the movement. So if you want to spend money on uh, on tech, and that also by the way includes uh, building up your factory, so your industrial level is um, built up by using these tech cards so you can play the the cards for tech or you can play the cards to build up your industry and if you build the industry then you forego the tech on that card and you reshuffle the both decks each turn so if you you know if you play uh, and that's the interesting thing is that you have to play two cards of a tech the matching cards to get that tech and then one of those cards goes back in the in the discard pile which means it's reshuffled the next turn so that somebody else may get that. And that actually had real implications for our game. Uh, we know what cards were going back in the, in the tech deck. The way that the, the tech deck works is that as you, uh, as you build tech, those techs get taken out of circulation. So they get either placed, usually they get placed on the table in front of you as your, as your, um, as your tech. You can also have secret techs, which means that you hide them uh, you place them face down. You say, "I have a secret tech," um, and but you don't reveal them. And that interesting thing is that they count against your hand limit. So you have uh, the 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 West. I love that they're called the West rather than yeah. the Allies. The West, the West, because they don't include uh, the Soviet Union, uh, has an eight eight card hand limit. The um, Axis have seven, and the the uh, Soviets have six. And those those extra techs can can severely limit how many cards you're going to hold over. Now, that hand limit is only checked once at a certain point in the game. It's not that crippling. But if we had realized, you know, what the distribution of code, we never really looked at the at the deck and saw yeah. what the distribution was. So, so this is this is the thing. This is there's there's a little bit of like a card counting aspect to this. Yes, there sure is. Because okay, so there, there's a few things. Uh, when you're looking at an investment card, in the center, it has its factory value. Yes. And so if you spend a certain number for your faction, like, so for the UK, for the for the West, it costs six factory points to increase your industrial base by one. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, cards can have four, they can have three, they can have two, they can have one factory thing on it. Okay. On the sides of the cards are the, the technologies that the card can be used to uh, research respectively. And, and there are different technologies on top and bottom. So you have Right, a, you so have you'll, you'll have, like, you will have air defense radar on one side 
and uh, rocket artillery on the other. Mm-hmm. And each of those will have an effect in combat. And, and a very elegant effect, right? So, like, yeah. the, uh, the um, you know, you might have uh, heavy bombers, which means that uh, aircraft can move three instead of two spaces, or you can have, um, you know... Um, uh, motorized infantry that moves it faster, well, or or rocket artillery, which means that uh, infantry have first fire, so that those those infantry fire before the opposing infantry. That's interesting. And this is where I, uh, some of the elegance I was talking about with this game starts to really come in. At a certain point, you almost certainly wish you had every tech. Right. Like there will always be a moment where you'd be looking at the board and saying, like, "Oh man, if I could do an amphibious assault that was worth a damn right now, mm-hmm. I could win this war today." Mm-hmm. But you can't because the odds of you ever doing an amphibious assault were really low. You didn't know that somebody would leave their capital exposed, you know, wow. just, a, just a sea space across. I don't know who that would be. So you should have had, you should have bought LSTs. But if you bought the, if you built, if you bought better landing craft, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have had the tanks that allowed you to blunt the enemy armor advance or something like that. Right. So that's, that's all well and good. But the thing is, once those techs are discovered, uh, when the, when the techs are discovered publicly and they're known to be out, one of the two cards that was used to discover it is out of play. It sits there with the tech displayed to remind people, hey, this technology has been researched. The other card enters circulation. When it's a secret tech, both of the cards vanish from circulation. They're just gone. And you really have to, like, you can, like, there were warning signs, like, to the way our game ended. There were certain things that we could have picked up on that would have indicated some very dangerous technologies were being researched because certain card values had started to become really scarce. But we didn't know the deck well enough. We just thought we were having bad luck and that nothing truly sinister was afoot. Uh, but it turned out, and this was, you know, to give away the end of our game, I think, because yeah. yeah. it is so tied to the technology yeah, sure system. Yeah, sure is, sure is. So what, what had happened was, so <clears throat> the interesting thing is that the I played the Axis, uh, and the uh, the Axis have a very low uh, factory, but um, I don't know what it's called, factory requirement or whatever you you yeah. they only have to use they only have to use five factory points to um to increase their industrial level which is you know the, the, i think this the soviets have something like eight um which can be uh, you know it's a big uh, or maybe seven but the way that the cards seem to distribute it, that's a significant um uh it's really a disadvantage for the soviets they have to spend a lot of investment cards they have to invest a mm-hmm. lot in their industry to make it uh, to make it useful, and there are some big cards uh, in the deck, but turns out that those big cards also have some very interesting tech on them. And one of the, the there's a victory condition. So there are several victory conditions. First of all, there's a victory condition where your production level uh, plus all your other victory points, if it uh, is 25 or greater, you win automatically. Yeah. And nobody's won World War II, really. Where it's being decided on points, and right? Going it's, to, it's just kind of a, it's just kind yeah. of like everybody. You you won the race for supremacy in the you know in the the first half of the 20th century, um, but um, you know you get victory points from a bunch of different things. The interesting thing before we tell about the the end of the game, we should talk about this very interesting concept called the peace dividend. Yes, and the peace dividend is is an incentive for people not to fight. You have a cup of chits. There are 32 chits, half of which have a zero value on them. I think 12 of them have a one point and four of them have two points. Each turn, which is each year, uh, that you don't fight in a battle and are not at war with anyone, you get a chit. So you may draw no victory points. You may draw a victory point. You might even draw two victory points. 
And if you're at peace for a long time, you can imagine, you know, you're, you have a 50% chance of drawing a victory point. If you go six years, that's three victory points. You have a few lucky draws. You've got an extra five victory points. There, you also have, there are also other, other uh, and you have um, researching the atomic bomb. Each level of that atomic bomb research is a victory point. So if you build up your industry, get some peace dividends and get some atomic bomb research, you can get to, you know, you could theoretically get to 25 if, if people aren't bothering you. Yeah. So that's sort of an incentive for people to go to war, right? Because you sit, the longer you sit and somebody else is, you know, investing a lot in industry. And that's, that, by the way, that's the important thing. Remember this, that um, resources, which are uh, less available than uh, population and industry, are not limited uh, in in peacetime. So that resource drag, your production is the, is the least of those three. So the resource drag doesn't occur during peacetime, and you can actually get a lot of population just by diplomacy. Because if you play a lot of diplomacy cards, people, you know, countries join your alliance, you get their population. It, it counts yeah. on your on your track. Even even if they don't join your alliance, if they're just friendly to you, so you can you can get population and and um, and resources for for very low investment. And then you just build your industry up. But there's another way to win the game, which is that you research the atomic bomb and you have a, an air fleet that is within range of an enemy major capital. So London or um, Moscow, Moscow or, or, Berlin. or Berlin. And the way that you research the atomic bomb is the way that you research any other tech, which is that you play two of the, you know, atomic, there's atomic bomb level one, two, three, and four. And level four is plutonium. And once you have plutonium and a, and a air fleet in range of one of these, one of your enemy capitals, you win. So there are a couple interesting things about this. Number one is that if you base an air fleet in the Ruhr, then it is within two spaces of London. But London is three spaces from Berlin, and London's the closest sort of allied space uh, that's, that's a, a, home, a home center uh, where, where you can build, right? So you can, you can automatically build in yeah. London. You'd have to move something somewhere else. Um, but the idea that you can be at peace, you can build something in your home country and then have, a, uh, have a, uh, an atomic bomb revealed and say, you know, gotcha, you, you, know, you lose, that's, that's kind of a big deal. Um, and then, of course, Moscow is very far from anything, so having uh, having bombers within range of Moscow, you'd have to be pretty. Uh, you'd have to already probably be already at war with the Soviets. Um, the distribution of the deck is important because I think there are there were something like four of the uh, atomic one level yeah. one, and then I think there were four of the level. But there were only I think the the key was that there were only two level four atomic bomb cards, and. I happened to pick up both of them and a level three on, I think it must, if it wasn't the, the second turn of the game, it was the third turn of the game. So 1936 or seven. So 1938, I had uh, atomic level three and two atomic level fours. Now I hadn't built them because I have to build one and two first. But the key point is that there are only two level four atomic bomb cards. So that means if I have them, I know that there's no possible way that anyone else can build the atomic bomb on, at all. And if I give up one of the cards, the, um, they're, they're, the way that the technology progresses through the years is that, you know, in 19, uh, there's a 1938, 40, 42, and 44 cards. 
1944, the um, well, actually in nineteen in yeah in nineteen forty the um, the atomic bomb is at level three tech is um, is a uh, oh sorry it's forty two nineteen forty two the atomic bomb level three tech there's a science card so that means if you have one level three card and that year's card then you can play it so that means by nineteen forty two if you're lucky enough to pick up the forty two science card you don't need both of the, the of the uh, so so you can you can shut people out of the atomic bomb if you had hold both cards of the level fours or if you hold a level four you know that nobody else can get that science card until 1944 because the level four science card is 1944 so these are all things that you don't know about the game if you just opened up the box and played it for the first time and you haven't looked at the deck so unbeknownst to me i had just by holding those three cards i had prevented everyone from getting the atomic bomb at all yeah and they couldn't even get level three until 1942 which is when the science card for, for the level three atomic tech comes up right uh and the thing is what nobody noticed was that like the warning should have been the moment all the high value investment cards vanished something was wrong right but nobody knew the game well enough to grok that so including the person holding those cards which is very true. Uh, and so, like, in the late game, and we'll talk about the war that was fought uh, in a bit, but in the late game, things were looking pretty dire for Germany. Germany, it was it was two minutes to midnight for Germany. Right. Uh, but Bruce, at that point, did a real power move. He did a full draft. Did Like, he just gave up on the war. Right. Just, like, looted the deck as much as he could. Right. And you still needed a draw in that last. You just need I one card. So, we, so, so let me step back for a second. So what happened was I was I was getting a little too involved in tech, and I had actually built Atomic 1 and Atomic 2 um, secretly. But I think um, Don actually played a, a spy card and saw that I had two Atomic 2s in my car, in my hand, and I already, already had one secret tech. Yeah. Uh, so, so Don knew. I don't think um, uh, Rob knew at that point. But Don knew I was at least, I was probably had Atomic 2. Um, but I was spending a lot of money on investment, and I wasn't really keeping up with the German army. And so in 19, I think it was 1940, or no, 1939, yeah. we attacked, we partitioned Poland. And I think in 1940... Yeah, it was straight uh, to war. Uh, the Soviet Union attacked the Germans. So they, they um, or attacked the Axis. No non-aggression pact. No non-aggression, that was it. That was, they, they came after me, they attacked uh, Warsaw. There was a big battle in Warsaw, Ultimately, the Germans prevailed, uh, actually with some lucky die rolls, but that's bag of dice for you. Um, but because the um, because the war had started, I started becoming resource limited. And because Don had done a good job of positioning himself to take my resources, I had fewer resources than Don. And even though I had built my industry up, you know, I had been investing a lot in industry. All of a sudden, I'm at war. I'm limited by resources. So my industry is 17. But my resources might only be 10. So, I mean, I'm like two-thirds of my, or sorry, I'm only two-thirds of my, of, of the level of production that I thought I was going to be at. And the, uh, the, the, the tide really turned against me at that point. And uh, I think that I really, I mean, I was losing the battle. There was, there was no way I was going to win a conventional war against the Soviets at this point. And the, um, the interestingly, the Western ally, or the West, being too clever by half, was doing an, an elaborate end run around uh, Sicily. Yeah, okay. So I was basically, like, I was 
I was setting to roll up the like roll up Germany and Italy like in the space, hopefully of a turn, like a mass assault, like take like take Italy, like take take Rome, uh, take uh, take the Ruhr Valley all in one go. Right, and you all and and, inter- and we have to t- tell the listeners that the the conquest victory conditions are not that. I mean, not that onerous. I mean, if you had con- if you had taken Rome and the Ruhr, not Berlin, yeah, you would have won a military victory. Yeah, um, the, you only have the, to have two two of the what are called uh, subcapitals. Now, the the trick there is the frontiers between the West and the Axis are a little bit thorny. Uh, it's it's tricky to make that first assault. Um, and the way this game handles combat is, so going over rivers, you're limited to two units, uh, in the first wave going over mountains, you're limited to one unit in the first wave, uh, which means things can go very badly for you as you attack over these, these obstacles. Uh, now where weight of numbers begins to tell is that you can keep feeding more units into combat on subsequent turns over those obstacles. Like at the same rate, it's still going to be hard to get new units across mountains, but eventually you will probably have like, you know, four or five units over there where you used to have just one and weight of numbers will tell. So I was I was definitely setting up for uh, a, a sort of a multi-prong assault. Oh, you were setting um, up for the perfect move. You were just like, oh, you were like, oh, I'm going to have this guy here. And I got this guy here. Yeah, oh, it was great. And like, like just, yeah, oh, yeah. And I would have and I would have and I would have gotten away for it, too, except for those, those, those meddling for, kids. Yeah, those meddling kids, because I was ready to make the move, except I couldn't get. The command card I needed to do it in the previous year. Uh, I needed a fall command card in order to give attack orders uh, to to launch the assault. Couldn't get one. Uh, the, no fall card showed up, uh, and no spring card showed up the next turn either. Uh, but yeah, that that didn't matter as much. Uh, but so yeah, the Western Allies dithered a little bit. But but Germany was basically now they were on their last they were on their last year. Yeah. They were not. They were not going to survive to see 1944. Yeah, uh, the war was ending. Yeah, and Bruce drafts everything out of the investment deck. Massive research, massive research, massive research effort. Uh, uh, Werner Heisenberg yep. uh, got the got the scientists going. And during the production phase, boom, boom, boom. He reveals the last pieces of the atomic research tree and builds, uh, builds the and bomb builds an aircraft. And he is. His western frontier is only two airspaces away from London. So the war ends with London either being nuked or threatened uh, with nuking, and the war is over. Uh, And Bruce wins, despite the fact that he now has, like, Berlin is surrounded by uh, western and Russian uh, tanks. But it was it was it was a very um, it was a very War of the Ring uh, Fellowship of the Ring type victory because you you lose track of the fact there is this other thing out there right uh, which is sort of beneath the surface because it's card driven right. the ultimate weapon is hiding among the cards right and it's very easy to tunnel vision as I did on the conventional war right. that the game is ninety percent about. Mm-hmm. But if Frodo and Sam and Werner Heisenberg managed to research the the the, the one plutonium ring, right. uh, then then that's game, yeah. and so that's that's the way it kind of ended. Which was, I mean, I'll admit I'm gonna be I'm gonna be thinking about that one for for a while. I'm gonna yeah. be reliving that tonight. Right. Uh, but it was a really cool ending. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it, was, was yeah. it was it was very it was it was very thematically appropriate. I I thought so. And, and the interesting, I mean, you just you go back through the game, and, and when 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 you debrief about games like this, and we we're just sitting there talking about it, you know, games that are this engaging and compelling, you know, even I mean, 
Don had a smile on his face, and, and, you know, he lost. I mean, I think, you know, everybody really enjoyed it. And and the funny thing is that how when you first discover a game system, you it, it, it's, so, it's so fresh, and, you know, you just, you didn't, you realize, like, wow, gosh, you know, yeah, when those, when, when, when those four factory cards weren't coming up, you know, I should have known. But the interesting for me, thing for me is, like, I got those cards early, and I, was, and I actually got the, the um, I got the first Atomic cards on the first turn, because just Germany gets dealt a lot of cards, so... And there are plenty of plenty of uh, plenty of atomic ones out there, so I think I got a reasonable a reasonable draw, and I just built that right away. And then I got atomic two, um, I think on the next turn. And then, but then I got the atomic three and two fours, and they're like I said, there are only two fours in the deck, but those cards have uh, have significant factory numbers on them, uh, like fours, which which for the Germans, if they just put them together with a one, they can build their industry up. Very tempting to just put those right back in play right. and, and build a factory. And I wouldn't have thought another thing about it except I got invaded by Don hit me in 1940, and immediately I had been building. You know, I had been building. You can only build your industry uh, twice uh, per, ter- per twice per year. So you know, you can go from 10 to 12 in, yeah. in 1939, uh, 12 to 14, 1940, et cetera, et cetera. And there are also, you know, there are cards, there are sabotage cards where p- players can play them on you to reduce your industry and things like that. But um, I had been building my industry up, but I think I got it up to like 17 and then I got attacked and all of a sudden my resources mattered. I think my resources were like 12. Yeah. Your population plummeted overnight Yeah, because like, that's the thing. Germany can have a really huge industrial base really easily, mm-hmm. but it's very hard for Germany to maintain connection with its resources, right. uh, especially because once they go to war with Russia, chances are both Russia and Germany are drawing a lot of their resources from sort of the um, the be- the battleground uh, right. countries right. that are sort of between between them and the Russian frontier. Right. right. And so, so all of a sudden, those high factory cards became useless to me because I didn't need to increase my industry. I needed to increase my resources and then, you know, some population. And so what happened was uh, I thought, well... You know, I've got these two uh, these two atomic fours, and I've got an atomic three. I mean, I just need one card, and I can and I can finish the whole atomic program. But I was getting attacked, so I stopped drawing investment cards yes. because I started using cards to build my army. I thought, okay, well, I can't build it. I can't. Uh, I, and I, you know, maybe I would have drawn that atomic three early, even earlier than yeah. I did. But for for two or three years, I stopped drawing. Yeah. I think. Uh, you know, 1941, 42, for two, yeah, for two years. 1941, 42, I didn't draw any investment cards. I was drawing action cards so that I could move my units to defend myself. And I was building strength points so that I could, you know, resist the, the Soviets. And in 1943, the the, the, the Soviets had invaded, um, you know, they, they had, I invaded Czechoslovakia to try to block them from coming in um, because of the, the um, mountain frontiers. Didn't work out so well. Um, they got into Austria, and I was I was kind of at the end of my rope, and I thought, well, I've got 10 points. The Soviets have something like 15 or 16, 16 points to build strength points with. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm losing that battle anyway. All I need is one more card. Yeah. And I had 10 points to build with, so I, I have to deliver the, the payload, so I have to build an air fleet. And I didn't actually didn't have any. Um, I built an air fleet, and then I said, okay, I've got nine cards. If I can just draw an atomic three, then I can just, I can build, uh, I can build one tech, one, one round of the production phase. I can build 
another tech, another, or actually, it's actually the government phase, to be honest with you, um, to, to, to say it uh, correctly. But in the government phase, you just keep going around and around playing your cards until you know, there's no there's no combat, no movement yet. Yeah. So I can do all this before anybody attacks me. So I drew nine cards. I didn't draw the Atomic 3, but I draw, drew something called the 1942 Science card, which you can pair. So it's basically to, to it's get— It's a catch-up card. Yeah, it's a catch-up card to get the text you know, kind of moving. So if you don't have two of one of these texts listed by 1942, you can use the Science card plus, uh, plus one of the tech cards. And, of course, I had the Atomic 3, and I had the 1942 Science— so I played 1942 Science, and then the next round I played the the, uh, the two Atomic Fours, and then I revealed my uh, air fleet within range of London. Game over before any combat or movement happened in 1943. Yeah. Something we should stress here is this all sounds like a very complicated game. It plays incredibly snappily. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's like the first turn took us a little while. Right. Uh, by the end, we are just whipping through these turns. Uh, I would say like... I wouldn't even put this game like much past uh, the D and D worker placement game. D and D worker placement. Yeah, Lords of Lords of Waterdeep. Lords of Waterdeep. Uh, I wouldn't put this that much beyond that. Even like mm-hmm. once once you figure out how these these systems work, like it, it it just the game just moves. Yeah, it does. Uh, it's it's not one of those games where you're constantly like flipping open the section like thirteen point two. Yeah, there's to none see of that. whether yeah none of um, that. the the rules are the rules are pretty straightforward. And the place where it gets finicky is always represented on the map by these really clear borders. Right. Oh, here's forests. Here's mountains. Uh, so the, probably the military stuff is where it gets the most finicky. Uh, but there's there's reference things on the on the map that basically tell you how 90% of it works. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's all very it's it's all very fast. Um I will say that that that, that war uh that, that 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 battle that fought that that broke out between you guys. How did that feel to you? Cuz I was I was on the sidelines uh for mm-hmm. that. But to me like as a bystander, it felt like a German Soviet war should feel right, just like massive slabs of troops mm-hmm. being hurled at each other in Poland. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was the it was the opening of the Eastern Front where Stalin attacked first. Yeah, um, and it was. I mean, it, and it was interesting, and the, and, the, and it went a certain way because of a certain card draw. So the the reason that I, so I cleared Poland out. We had a he attacked me in Poland, um, got some bad luck. Don Don uh, certainly didn't roll well, but then on the next turn, I built some units. And I um, I was able to I, I draw drew a command card that could go in spring and it was a high priority in spring, and I was able to move. Actually, I think what I did was at, I think it might have been I, I I might be mistaken. I think I had an emergency in uh, so you can you can you can you can play a a, a season for uh, a season that's not in so you can play a fall or a, yeah. or a summer and spring. But you can't attack. You can't attack. But I sort of reinforced without attacking, and then I think in summer I had the uh, I had the advantage, and I moved in more units, and then I attacked, and I had uh, heavy tanks, so I had a first fire on my so my um, my tanks fired before the defenders' tanks, and that kind of wiped them out, and then uh, I just so I cleared out Poland. And that let me last long enough to build the top bomb. Yeah. Although I have to say, I think I probably could have, if I had just spent all my tech uh, or all my points on tech for two or three years, I would have drawn that card as well. Yeah. Um, so it was, but it, it, it's one of those things where um, if they had known what I had, and, and I have to say, I have to say, Rob, uh, you, you were doing the, um, I'm going to make the perfect 
absolutely oh, yeah. best possible move and let me fine tune every every um, oh yeah spark was, plug on this porsche and yep. before i start the engine yeah no like it was going to like it would have been a beautiful move um it would have been like because it was going to be basically uh, the jaws of the trap springing shot all the way from uh holland all the way down to uh malta mm-hmm. uh and just going to gobble up the entire western frontier of uh of the axis yeah and i just did there too long here's the uh, here's the other thing I was also distracted by shiny things. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the shiny things. Okay, so this is the thing about this game. This is like where I get really eager to play it again. Because there is so much possibility on this map. But things take time. It takes a while to do these things. And like giving orders to keep your units moving. Like I'll give you the example of something that occurred to me and cost me to waste valuable time. Valuable actions. As Russia's attack on Germany sort of shattered on on uh, uh, on Königsberg, uh-huh. um, there were no more Russians. There were like like Russia was stripped bare. There was nobody mm-hmm. in the in the Soviet interior. Right. And I'm everybody sitting, was for everybody had gone to the west. Everybody, yeah. everybody. And I'm sitting there. I'm staring. And I've got a pile of units in in the British Raj, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, well, I mean, they they, they they were just things to sort of secure India. I wasn't even thinking about them as as a possibility. But then I realized, like, wait, I could just I could just walk up through through Persia, take Baku, and maybe even sprint to Moscow. But it would be easy. There's nothing there. Like right. he couldn't stop me by the time like he doesn't he he's he's too he's too invested in this war. Mm-hmm. So I spent a few a few actions, and and given the way this game came down, maybe those actions were decisive in the mm-hmm. end. But right. I spent a few actions starting to mobilize my forces uh, in India, mm-hmm. as well as starting to the reason. So one of the reasons I ended up with this Italian strategy yeah. was because I just realized I would never have time to get my soldiers across the Mediterranean, across the Middle East. To India to mm-hmm. like assault the Soviet southern flank, mm-hmm. and I realized like there's just not enough time in this game, and that's when my goals shifted to the Mediter- Mediterranean strategy. Except then I learned the same thing that Churchill had to learn. Well, I'm not sure he ever actually did learn it, okay? Because uh, he kept trying it, but you know, Italy's really difficult to invade. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of mountains, there's a lot of sea, a lot of oceans. Right. Um, but the thing you didn't realize was how lightly defended it was. Yes, I should have. If if I had paid attention to what the what the uh, fascist starting setup was, right. I would have realized that all those Italian tiles out there were paper tigers. Well, the the way that you know, so every every unit that's the, the way that you set the game up is that you can put out any kind of unit you want because all the units have the same. And that's another thing. That's another thing that, that sort of defies your inner grognard, right? I mean, it costs the same to build an aircraft carrier as it does to build an, you know, a, an infantry unit. And they kind of, they kind of dance around it by saying, well, you know, this is really an infantry army, but you're only really building one aircraft, whatever. Fine, fine, fine. Um, it still doesn't, uh, it still doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Really doesn't work, but fine. It, it okay. Um, but, Rob had all the information he needed because every every unit starts at one, and there's not any hidden information in terms of what you built. So he never saw me actually turn an Italian block to increase its strength. 
but in my head, they had become like fortified. Like it right. was, oh, it was, it was Monte Casino all, all down. The yeah, head. exactly. So I was like, look, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. I don't need no Anzio here at the, here at this stage. But but the other thing, and this is what kind of gets me excited to play this game again. I mean, if I'd committed from day one to threatening the southern frontier of the Soviet Union, I could have filtered units down across the Mediterranean, and then I would have threatened, I would have threatened the fascists, and I would have threatened the Soviets uh, from from a pretty strong, like nor- North African, uh, Middle Eastern position. It just would have, would have required committing to that possibility early. the The mistake I made yeah. is that. We started the show by talking about how this isn't really World War II. It could right. be something else completely mm-hmm. different. Sure. But in my head... You're fighting World War II. Yeah. I'm still like, oh, my God. I just need to get these French troops like on the field. Like, we are, like I'm investing in fighters. Like, imagine a line. No, 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 no. We need, we need forts everywhere. We need, we need strategic depth. We need full-strength infantry, or, like armor. So France was loaded for war. In the end... France probably could have just taken Germany out by itself. Yes. Like, it didn't need the UK yep. at all. Correct. But I kept seeing, I kept looking at the board and expecting it to turn back into World War II. I kept expecting, mm-hmm. like, oh, man, if France rolls, they're going to get, like, it's going to be rough. Mm-hmm. So I think, it like, now, realizing that, I, I probably would have been more aware of the state of play as opposed to what this would have looked like in 1941 as 1941 happened uh so that's 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 probably what got me is mm-hmm. i was the the shadow of world war ii was looming a bit large because as the commonwealth player i keep expecting it all to go to hell right right like I keep expecting because they thought they were fine right you know in 1940 they were feeling pretty good right. about where they were at and then it blew up overnight and right. so I, that was still like sort of haunting me throughout that game like if paris falls all that investment in france is gone right. if the capital of france goes all those french soldiers vanish overnight right. all the investment right. gone so that that probably that uh that gummed up the works yeah um i think that uh but there's a lot of stuff that can, you know, if you had moved all your fleets to the uh, to the Mediterranean and we hadn't been at war, would I have started building fleets? And once again, so this is a block game. You wouldn't have known that I was building mm-hmm. fleets. Mm-hmm. You would have you would just sit, see me building blocks in, in Ruhr and you would have thought, oh, well, he's, you know, he's building uh, tanks to, and all of a sudden they, they move out into the North Sea. So, um, you know, there are a lot, there are some, you know, concessions to abstraction here. But I think in general, the way that the game connects the cards and the, the production system and the changes, uh, the, uh, the, there's an incentive not to attack because you lose a victory point um, for declaring war on a um, – you lose a victory point for declaring war on one of the great powers, and you give cards to your opponent. Now, action cards, but they're diplomas. So this is an interesting also thing mm-hmm. that you get by – Violating the neutrality of a minor, you get to uh, you basically give diplomatic cards to your opponents, which is a, which is a very elegant thing too as well. Yeah. Because what you're basically doing is um, the the more consequential the minor power, the more uh, diplomatic cards you give to your opponents when you violate their neutrality. So that means that you have that your opponents have you know can say, hey, see that guy? He he's a, he's invading these countries ally with me yeah so you know that that's that's a very thematic thing 
and it's done in a very elegant way using the systems that are using these very pretty straightforward systems that are in the game. Yeah, and it communicate, and again, that communicates something about World War II, right? That the reason, like a lot of that early game, it's hard to build those coalitions. Mm-hmm. But if this had gone a little more uh, to the history, right? Mm-hmm. So if if Russia and Germany hadn't gone straight at each other's throats, mm-hmm. but had instead fought the proxy war mm-hmm. a little bit longer, trying to pick off states and Mm -hmm. and influence others and and, and, uh, subjugate others, what would have happened is, as the West, I would have just been raking in more diplomatic capital Mm -hmm. uh, because, and what it's kind of simulating there is every time people were taking steps to bring bring neutrals on side by force, Mm -hmm. then the people who aren't making those those aggressive moves are getting soft power. Right. And so you would have had a situation where everyone else is sort of running to sort of hide behind England and France's skirts. Right. Uh, that didn't end up happening because really, like, Poland went down and then immediately World War II began. Right. But it was an interesting possibility. And again, it's that's another entirely different line of play that was possible, right? That that Cold War could have dragged on mm-hmm. in nineteen forty. Yeah, you could have done it. Yeah. And then who knows? Who knows what the what the alliances look like? Who knows where the where the war fronts are starting from? What's the starting line? Right. This is all these are all fascinating possibilities. And right. uh I think that's one of the reasons like that you know, there's a lot of war games where even ones you like, you finish them. And you're like, I am tired. Right. Let's, let's pack it up. I need right. a walk. Right. I need to get some right. air. Right. If we'd had more time, if it had yeah. been, you know, if we hadn't finished at five, if we'd finished at like two thirty or three, yeah. right. right? I'd have been sorely tempted just to right. be like, set it up again. Let's right. run it. Right. Well, that's a good segue, actually, because talk. Speaking of being tired. Oh man, let's I talk. Am so a, sorry. Let's talk about a game we played yesterday. Yeah. This is a game. So Rob. Rob flew in. Uh, he got here at, uh, I don't know, 11-something a.m. Yeah. He had gotten up at 3.30 in the morning or so. Yeah. Uh, and he was tired, but uh, he wanted to play a coin game. So I I invited Don. Don came over, and we played the coin game that I think is best suited to three-player play, which is Fire in the Lake by Mark Herman Volko Runkit. And it's a great game, and I've talked about it on Wild Weasel. Um, it's the game that I'm most excited about in theory, and then most sort of uh just uncomfortable with the ending in certain in certain situations in practice it actually in this case i think it, it worked it, out pretty well in it our worked game, out but. well in our game but but um that's because we play uh, the 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 medium scenario but anyway um so rob this was your first go round versus your first rodeo with the coin system tell i have me, played a little it. labyrinth no, but okay, so this is no so labyrinth is not a coin game it's a coin it's the it's not the coin system. Volume one of the coin system is Andean Abyss. Labyrinth is about counterinsurgency, but it's not the coin system. Okay. Really. I mean, it's... And, it's, and that's fair. And that's fair. To be fair, Labyrinth is really more about the limits of power, right? That, like, Labyrinth is... Co- Labyrinth's core mechanic is, like, it's about being a superpower right. in a world of disorder. Right. Um, and the and, and the goal there is just to make one too many requests on the superpowers reserves of strength, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then a day comes where they can't answer it, and game over. Right. Yeah. So this is this is the coin system, and I was really tired. Yeah, you were. like I was like I just for, just for the listeners, I want to say I would look over at Rob and Don and I would be talking about something, and I would look at Rob and I was like, I'm we're saying things, and he's looking. But I'm not sure if he really hears what is going on. Yeah. Uh, 
so the thing is, I, I, I learned the game in stages as my tired brain started to soak various parts of it up. Uh, but I think one of the really helpful things that really, that really crystallized this game for me was when you said there's two parallel wars happening here at once. Mm-hmm. It's not one war. You think you're fighting Vietnam, but the four sides are fighting different wars. And this is a crucial thing to understand that I didn't fully grok until pretty late. Which is that the the United States is there to stop the spread of communism They're and fu- put down the the rural insurgency in South Vietnam and prevent and, and yes prevent North Vietnam from from steamrolling the entire country. But really, it's the hearts and minds thing. They're fighting an ideological war. Yes, communism versus democracy, U.S. versus yes. Uh, versus the Viet Cong, nuclear right. combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. No, sorry. Oh, that's from a different thing. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's fine. Keep going. Meanwhile, Arvin, Army of Republic of Vietnam, is fighting a, a conventional war against... The North, North Vietnamese North, Army. Yeah, the Army of the North NBA. Vietnamese. So it's yeah. the two armies are fighting a conventional war yeah. for territory. Right. And so each each location on the map, each province and each city has two values next to it, each other. And it's very easy, and this is where I sort of got lost early, mm-hmm. to view them as two things that move in tandem. You need both. That's not really true. Right. I was thinking you needed popular support and and counterinsurgent force control. Well, you we do... Need, yes, you ideally... You do pacify yes. it during... Right? So you you do need... You need, do need coin control. The thing that... The thing that... So, <clears throat> for the listeners, the coin system is about... Two things. It's about the uh, the hearts and minds, as, as Rob said, and it's about territorial control. So you have opposition versus support. So there's 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 opposition versus support for an entity, a government entity, and there's control by the government entity or the insurgent entity. In some games, there's more than one insurgent entity. Um, so here, it was very there was a very clear. Uh, clear conflict going on between the North Vietnamese Army and the, and the Arvind, as Rob said, and the, the U.S. and the Viet Cong. And in order to pacify, so in order to win the hearts and minds, you actually have to control the territory. So, so the thing for Rob was that he had to help me. I was playing the South Vietnamese. He was playing, he was playing the, um, uh, the U.S., and then Don was playing the North Vietnamese and the, and the uh, Viet Cong. And so this is actually—we the reason we had three players, so this is actually a good game. This is the only—well, um, it's, it, it's the best coin game, I think, that would—so if you're, you have three players out there, or if you have two players, until Colonial Twilight comes out for two players, this is the best coin game to play with two players. And, and for three, I think, also, because there, it's really two teams. Sorry, Colonial Twilight is not so, a Gupta's game, isn't it? No, Colonial Twilight is uh, Brian Train's game. I've speak, spoken to Brian Train on uh, Three Moves Ahead. You can uh, look look up uh, the Three Moves Ahead podcast with Brian Train. Brian Train did a game about Algeria in 2000, just called Algeria. And he's now doing Colonial Twilight, which I think will be volume... Oh, uh, Imperial Struggle is an honest game. Okay, it was the yeah. Twilight thing. Co- that Colonial started. Twilight, yeah. Imperial is so the Twilight Struggle. Colonial Twilight is the end of the French uh, French colonialism. In it's actually the last probably well no the last colonial empire to fall was uh, Portugal, right? Um, but uh, but France in Algeria, uh, that's the that's Brian Train's game. So that'll be a two player coin. There are no other two player coin games, by the way. Um, the uh, Fire in the Lake is good for three, for two and three players, 
and we decided that we would have Don, who's, who has played the game once before, actually, and won as the U.S. We'll, we'll throw that out there for Don. Um, he uh, played the North Vietnamese and the Kong. Rob played the U.S. I played the Arvin. And I was sort of, <clears throat> I have to say, I was giving, I was, I was coaching Rob because he has his first coin game. I was like, dude, look, you got to do this. Dude, you got to do this. But at the end, because, you know, you got to do what you got to do, right? Yeah, okay. So this is, you're going to admit it. You're going to admit it. Well, this is this is how the, this is how these things go. So, this is very thematic. I will say it was very thematic. thematic. So, so one of the things about the um, about the way that so <clears throat> remember the way a game is designed reflects, and I, you know, I, I don't have to tell you or, or any of the listeners this that the way a game is designed reflects that the way that the designer views the conflict, right? So, the way that Mark and Volkow view the conflict is that the South Vietnamese government had, well, a lot of corruption, and they were less interested in control in the actual, you know, ideological uh, sympathy of the populace. Is they were just interested in military control and getting, taking money from the U.S. aid, and putting it in their Swiss bank accounts. So that's fine. I mean, that's a that's a that's a legitimate reading of history. Um, and you know, and I, I, I'm not arguing with that point. The and and so therefore, I use the game mechanic to my advantage. So what happened was, you can take instead of you can use aid to move up what's called patronage, but then it costs control. It costs uh, sorry, it doesn't cost control. Hearts and mistake. minds costs opposition or support turns into opposition. Um, it's. Uh, or actually, it goes towards neutral. But the point is that the people like you less when you start skimming their money off and putting it in your Swiss bank account. But interestingly, Rob is Rob wants the people to like you, and I don't care. So I'm going to say, first of all, for a guy who was running on three and a half hours sleep, I made a pretty astonishing comeback in that game. Uh, he, you did. Like, you, were, you were very. Like, you had. Yeah. I was nowhere at the start of that game. And totally this, at sea. And what what made the difference was I realized I need to stop listening to Bruce. <laughs> like there was this there was this part of me in the back of my mind because Bruce Bruce is playing Bruce is playing Arvin very very effectively. So he's going around being like, you know what you really need to do is you need to deploy more American forces here here and here. We'll sweep more and kill all these NVA. And then we'll go and we'll control these territories. It'll be great. We'll be fine. I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I keep doing that. And yes, coin control is going up. But there's always more NVA. There's always more Viet Cong. And meanwhile, like the popularity of the anti-communist cause in Vietnam just continues to plummet. Like We are losing hearts and minds even as we begin to exert a little more control on the countryside. And meanwhile, like America's <laughs> like you're on this victory point track, and as America deploys more forces, and I did because I was like, damn it, we are gonna. Oh, I am Rob gonna. went all in. He used every single American the unit. The cupboard that was, was bare. I yeah. was like, so the game starts in '68, and I went full Westmoreland. Yeah, I was like, this is an unpopular war. Fine, half a million more men. That's right. So I bring them all in. Yeah, and it, you know. There's a lot of cool things. This is this is the thing. This is the thing I love about games like this. Mm-hmm. When they make the historical moments land, mm-hmm. it is it is exquisite. Yeah. When when Don launched Tet, yes, and Tet is this really dramatic event, 
where suddenly just all hell breaks loose. Vietnam is overrun with with communist insurgents. There's fighting everywhere. But then at the end of the day, you're still the United States. And now the Viet Cong have exposed themselves. You have a lot of targets and you have a lot of air power. And so Tet is this really dramatic, like awful event. You're just watching the country get away from you. And then the tide crests. And then you're like, all right, let's roll this back. And it is a massacre. And it was really cool because in the wake of that, I immediately realized like this was my practically my one and only chance. So on the next coup card, because coup cards are kind of what divide the game in two stages. Mm -hmm. They're they're when you're allowed to make big strategic realignments in the game. Right. Uh, And I was like, the moment, like, we just killed all these NVA and it still didn't bring me any closer to my goal. I need to, it's, it's hilarious. I ended up basically like psychologically refighting the entire Vietnam War because I start out by saying I'm going all in. Tet happens. We kill a lot of Viet, uh, Viet Cong and we kill a lot of Viet Cong and then VA. And then I realize this isn't winning the war and I begin a really aggressive policy of Vietnamization. Except it wasn't expressed that way to me in my head. It was... Stop listening to Bruce. Because <laughs> I start because every time we're, we're, things are starting to turn, I see Bruce flipping popular support tiles over and skimming more money off, and he's moving closer and closer to victory. And I was like, well, hell with that. Arvin can do the fighting. I'm bringing my guys home, and we're going we're gonna to try to win some other way. So this is the, so the, for the listeners, this is interesting. The, the way the, the, um, the way that the uh, visual conditions work for the U.S. is that they add. It's actually a combination. So, so it's a, it's really a political. It's an interpretation of the political situation in the United States, which is that you combine the level of support for, you know, for democracy, which is what they call, you know, for the government. Let's call it that. Yeah. And but you know, ideologically in that sense, so the level of ideological support with the number of available troops that the U.S. has. And available troops means that the troops that are not in the country. The more troops that are at home and not deployed. Right. America is actually tantalizingly close to winning the Vietnam War if they right. don't deploy anything. Exactly. So so the point is that, you know, I, we were fighting and then, you know, at some point, and, and it, Tet's an interesting, Tet's an interesting um, mechanic. I mean, I hate repeating myself, but gosh, you know, designers like Mark Herman and Volko, they're, it, they're such, it, it, they're, they're geniuses. I mean, the, the way that they put this together, that, you know, one of the capabilities that the, the, um, the Don side had was that if we use every assault that we did, increased opposition, the free fire zone thing, and then every airstrike we did that, that uh, and then we, we did a laser guided bomb thing. I think you, mm-hmm. you you mitigated that some, but every airstrike we did also increased opposition. That's in the rules, actually. That's not a, a capability. So what happened was we were clearing out areas and establishing military control, but pissing the people off and losing the ideological battle. Now, fortunately for me, that was fine. I didn't care. So the only thing that that bothered me. That that um, the, the disadvantage for me there was that if the people didn't support me, I couldn't skim off aid. So I got my little enclaves, and which is very also thematic, right? You have certain factions yep. that, uh, like the Catholic factions, that were you know always going to be very very supportive of the government. You get you build out little little enclaves, and then you just you know you skim some money off, and then you build up support. You spend some money on them, and then you 
skim some money off, and then you skim spend some money yep. on them. You just you keep the keep the keep the pipeline flowing. And we got to a point where uh, it, it actually worked, just like it did historically for uh, for Don. It was a military disaster, but our response to Ted, which was to kill everyone, uh, increased opposition to the government to the point that the NVA, or sorry, the, I'm sorry, the Viet Cong, because that was the, yeah. the Tet was a, a Viet Cong uh, action, that the Viet Cong actually exceeded the victory threshold. However, because Don was playing the NVA and the Viet Cong, there's a rule that prevents you from tanking one of your sides yes. to basically, you know, uh, to support the other side. So you use the lower of the victory thresholds, um, or the the the, the, the number the, the 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 number of victory points you get from your two sides. You have to lo- use the lower one. So we ended up with a very most of these coin games are actually very close. And then in my experience, um, it's it's one or two points that d- divide each d- d- uh, separate each player. Um, I actually won um, at the end of the game. I, I Nobody made their victory threshold. I was three points away. Um, the NVA was four points away. Rob was just five points away, and he had been like— I had crested third, it. Yeah, like, 30 the, points away yeah. at the one point in the game. But he, but but Bruce was able to siphon my victory margin right. off in his side. Yes. So so every point for yep. me was a point against you. Yep. So, so I had, I had done it. I, I, I'd, I'd come so close. And the interesting thing is that— uh, the U.S. can actually, because they 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 control the, the 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 South Vietnamese government, they can sort of tell them where to spend the resources. So um, they can, Rob can build support using troop uh, troops and police, uh, especially the police yeah. of the South Vietnamese. But um, I had to remove uh, at, at certain there's desertions and things like that. So at some point, I have to remove units. And so at the very end of the game, I preferentially removed Vietnamese police so that Rob was unable I to pacify. pacify. Yeah. So, you know, and that's, you know, hey, you know what you're going to do? You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, that's, that's, one of the, that's one of those things uh, that shows how people have, you know, a heart, how they're at cross purposes. Um, and uh, which is a hallmark of the coin series. Yes, exactly. The, that the, is these the, are not these are not simple insurgent versus the state conflicts. Mm-hmm. That they are actually multi-axis conflicts. Right. That make it harder for the counterinsurgent faction to accomplish their mission because it's easy to misapprehend the ways that ally, even your friends, right. are working across purposes. Right. And I think that's a very important point. And 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 uh, the but the point I I should make that's a, that's also in tandem with that point is that it you shouldn't take that as being wow this game is teaching me reality no this game is teaching me how this designer has interpreted reality and so is that how it actually is well you know you can have your own opinion about it i think that it's it's not an unreasonable interpretation of the conflict um you may have a different interpretation of the conflict um but I, i certainly feel like it's a game that from my perspective ended up Uncannily reproducing the thought, the the arc of American thought process regarding Vietnam, which right? I, which is this is how this is certainly how American thinkers eventually started regarding this conflict, right? right? That Arvin was no longer a horse worth backing, and that the thing, like all you wanted to do, was reach a sustainable status quo and get the hell out. Which is why this game ends in seventy three, right? It's a game that doesn't go till seventy five. Um, so you know. 
I think that, like we said earlier in the in the conversation, that the um, the hallmark of a good game is not only that uh, the you know alternate history is plausible when it happens, but that historical play yields historical results. I think that's I think Fire in the Lake really does uh, do that in almost all cases. The only one that that one the one edge case, which is actually less of an edge case than an actual case that happens. Fairly frequently. Oh, sorry. No, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. So, the, so I have to say that I think that this is this is an excellent design. Um, I'm very impressed by how well this game is done. There's one issue that I have with the game. It is a victory condition issue. We've talked about it before. When the Arvin are about to win, the U.S. in certain situations have has a very powerful. Uh, has a very powerful counter, which is that they can pull their troops out to basically cause the Arvin to lose territorial control to the Viet, uh, to well, to the NVA or to anybody. But they can basically they can basically pull out and force and and cause the South Vietnamese to lose territory, which I think is crazy. And I actually had I played a game uh, against uh, we were some friends of friends of mine and I were playing on Vassal. We I've actually played this game quite a few times. Um, so it was really unfair to Rob. Um, I, but I played a lot uh, on Vassal. I've only played it, I think, a handful of times face to face. Even so, it's one of the games I played the most recently. Um, but uh, I had a, I had a situation where um, I was playing against. Well, uh, it was actually uh, uh, one of our quarter three guests, Rod Humble, uh, was playing with me, and he was the U.S. I was the Arvin, and I got to the point where I was going to win, and Rod could have pulled out. And you know, you know, and Rod said, "You know what? That's ridiculous. That's unthematic. It's ludicrous." And I'm really not helping myself at all. I'm just helping the North Vietnamese or the Viet Cong win. Um, but he could have, and the game could have kept going. So I guess, yes, the 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 um, the historical slash realistic justification is that the U.S. wouldn't do that because it would have given the game to the communists. But from a gameplay standpoint, if somebody's going to win, you got to stop them. Well, also, I mean, to an extent, that is how the war kind of ultimately ends, is that the United States pulls out entirely. And Well, they were pulling out entirely because—so here's the thing. The United States was pulling out entirely to meet their own victory conditions of increasing their available units. But I, I am I am just saying it's, it's only unthematic up to a point, except until you remember that in the end, the U.S. watched— South Vietnam go under and didn't send in forces. But they won. It was a well, tie. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. It, it was a tie. Yes. As we all learned from a fish called Wanda, <laughs> it, was, it a was a tie. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think, I think it's, a, it's a fascinating game. And I think it, it, it's, its end game conditions may illustrate some issues with how do you wrap up a conflict that, that never did have a definitive ending until basically mm-hmm. one of the parties had just given up entirely? Right. And, it, and it just goes, goes to show you that. Games can't solve everything. It's true. It's a it's true. It's a serious blow for the serious games movement. That's true. That's uh, true. By, by the end, but I really I really enjoyed it. And again, at the end, I did feel like I wanted to play again because I felt like I was only really starting to grok it once I realized that a don't listen to Bruce. <laughs> well, because because Bruce wanted like Bruce was like no. Use U.S. forces to go do all this stuff. And then I was like, wait, but I could just use Arvin forces instead a great deal to accomplish a lot of the same ends. Well, you can't. You, yeah, and you can't all. I mean, you can take Arvin forces along. 
I, you know, to 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 be to defend myself a little bit, you know, there in general, you know, when you play a coin game for the first time, it's overwhelming, and so really overwhelming. Yeah, you because the because the mechanisms and and this is uh, this is a a straight up uh, pain to to uh, uh, vocal runke. Um, The systems are so inventive and uh sort of unintuitive they're also fussy yes i would say well, they're also a bit fussy, fussy but I, but what i'm trying to say is that volco really came up with a a, a a system that works so well and it's just a different it's a different way of playing a game um that experienced gamers once you learn the system will really appreciate and sure enough the the new player will have a hard time getting into it okay? So there's there's a couple of final thoughts I, I had about this game. One is that I think the 68 scenario is a very good place to start just from a standpoint of it was a manageable size scenario. Mm-hmm. I do feel like it would have been nice to have started in 65 because at that point the conflict ramps up in a way that would have been a little easier for me on the learning curve angle. You would have actually, but here's the problem with that. The 65, the early, game, early war scenario is shorter and it leaves... Oh, there isn't a 65 to 72 scenario? The campaign? Yeah. Well, yeah. My, oh, you were talking about the campaign. Yeah. So the problem with the... So if you start in 65, the, the 68 scenario sort of sort of, sort of, of uh, training wheels you in a way because it puts your units out there in a way where the, the conflict is already sort of set up and defined. When you play the early game scenario, you sort of have to know what you're doing to get your units out there. You, if you don't play it right, you can get overwhelmed. And I, I, that actually happened in my first couple games as the, um, well, actually my very first game as the U S I, uh, I didn't know what I was doing and the Viet Cong just ran over me because I didn't, I didn't understand how to establish my position so that I could do the effective counterinsurgency. Um, but I guess that what I was trying to defend myself is that the game is a little overwhelming when you're, when you're starting. And I, I thought I gave Rob reasonable advice in the sense that, you know, let's not get crushed by these jokers. Yes. And so we didn't get crushed by these jokers. And in the end, it was a very tight game. Uh, and in the end, I, I mean, Rob would have been, I, I, and I would have come in last if I hadn't used the patronage yeah. mechanism, which is, you know, I mean, that's the best part of the game. Uh, but we were very, in a very close, it was, I mean, it was three, four, five. And actually the end, the um, Viet Cong uh, were one point over their victory margin. But because Don was playing, the NVA and the VC, he had to take the lower, and so he was he was plus one and minus four, which lost out to my minus three, and and Rob was right there with minus five, so minus yeah. three, minus four, minus five. I mean, yeah, it was a photo finish. It, yeah, it was a photo finish. So I think that. Um, so tell me this, Rob. Uh, you've now played this mythical beast known as the coin system. Do you want to play a different coin game? Yes. Which is the most? Which is the coin game you'd be most interested in playing? So you've got you got. So there's actually. Okay. I'm gonna give you, I mean, let's let's go through for the listeners. We have the coin system series, um, Volco, uh, the the uh, the smash hit, uh, um, amazing uh, revelation of gaming that happened as ND in a bit. I was I was just really really pleased and just uh, surprised and all sort by ND in Abyss. Um, that came out. That was number one. Number two was actually Cuba Libre, which I hadn't played until recently. That, and so Andinabis is the uh, Colombian, basically Civil War. Um, Cuba Libre is the um, is the anti Batista yeah, revolution. Revolution. Yeah. Um, 
uh, number three was um, Brian Train vocal Runke with uh, with distant, uh, distant plane, which is the war in Afghanistan. Not Iraq, by the way. Not Iraq, just Afghanistan. Number four was Fire in the Lake with uh, Mark was Mark Herman's design. Number five will be Volko, and I believe it's his son uh, who have designed um, uh, a Falling Sky, which is the Gallic Revolt against Caesar. I'm fascinated. I, that's uh, by the way that this will that will have been charged to your p500 account uh on uh i think it's gonna be tomorrow actually the uh the 11th of april so if you're listening to this uh you you have a very short time to get in on that p500 before it's probably going to sell out um and uh, after that will be uh mark guillon reti and his pen dragon which is uh basically arthurian britain uh, and then after that, we will have um, Brian Train and uh, Colonial Twilight, which is the uh, the first two-player coin game. Yeah. So you have all those games uh, of the games that are available now. So let's talk about uh, Andean Abyss, Cuba Libre, A Distant Plane, and let's add Falling Sky because it's basically okay. out. Which one do you want to play next? <sighs> well, see, the thing is, my, the thing that actually really excites the imagination quite a bit. Pendragon. Pendragon. Of course. Of Everybody course. wants to play. No because, no, because here's the thing, right? Right. It's going to be the one that's least constrained by historical circumstance mm-hmm. because who knows? Who actually knows Jack about the, you know, the, the Roman pullout from, from Great Britain? Didn't Mallory know? How about Le, Le Mort d'Arthur? I have not, it right here, by the yeah, way. Yeah, not, not, not a super accurate account, I think, of the, I think of the late Roman imperial collapse. Like, no, I think it was uh, uh, pretty much... Um, pretty, pretty much as it was? Is It was, yeah, yeah. pretty much okay, word cool. for word. Uh, but no, so that, that one interested me just because I'd be curious to see what happens with that, with that system where you don't have to deal with as many thorny realities. Uh, I think the classicist in me is really excited about Falling Sky mm-hmm. because, one, I find it interesting to interpret Caesar's conquest of Gaul as a counterinsurgency. Yes. I that, think that's yes. An, like right there, defining it that way, as opposed to a conventional conflict where a developed nation with a, with a, with a national identity right. conquers and subjugates a nation, several nations without a state. I think that's an interesting system to adapt that conflict to. And I agree. So I'm, I'm I agree. really dying to see how it works. Okay. Well, that's uh, that'll that'll be coming. I mean, that'll be out in the next uh, you know couple of months because it's if it's being charged, if it's being charged tomorrow. Then I can't imagine it. You, I'd hope to see it by the end of May. Yeah. Uh, also, like Andy and Abyss has just sounded fascinating to me yeah. at all times, just because I think the uh, the 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 narco conflicts of the these this is the eighties, right? That were the the, yes. the, the game is set That's during correct um, and nineties. Those have always seemed fascinating to me uh, as well because this is this is the side of this is the side of the the war on drugs that people tend to forget about, right? The fact that like in the United States, they look like a police problem, but in Latin America, it it's a full dress war. Right. Uh, so it, it, I am very curious to see how how that works as well. And it's something that's cool about these games, and I think that it sh- the, these games share this with like a game like Twilight Struggle. Yes, you are dealing with a designer's interpretation of events, mm-hmm. but they still do a very good job of bringing these events to life. Like if you're playing, if you're, if you're playing, um, if you're, if you're playing fire in the lake, uh, in a more leisurely fashion and you have time to sort of look up what each of the cards is referring to, for instance, as you're playing these events, you're sort of also learning 
a TikTok of the pivotal events of the Vietnam War. And I think right. that's, I think that I think it's very, it's a very cool thing to be able to do that in a war game setting, right? Where you can sort of, you can sort of be looking and thinking about the problem of the, the, the game mechanics have set before you and then how these events come through and affect that. I think that's a very powerful, that's a very powerful thing. Well, I, I agree with you, but let me just act as a devil's advocate here. So hello, Mr. Devil. Um, and say, well, what if, you know, the idea of using the word support as a, as an adjective for, or as a, as a label for the, uh, for the ideological battle, how about delusion? What if you were a North Vietnamese designer and decided that you were having, you know, delusion versus truth, right? Mm-hmm. You were you were a communist, uh, you know, you were you were a com- communist cadre, or you were a, you were a stooge or a deluded uh, a deluded traitor. So, I mean, you can, you you can make these games say anything you want, really, right? That's an excellent point. I'm not sure you can though. Uh, because I think ca- define, once you define them as counterinsurgency, you're sort of picking a side right there. Well, right? I mean, I mean, but I say why you need to make it a counterinsurgency game. Why can't it be an, an insurgency, insurgency game? game? Yes, uh, that's that's a very interesting question. So, like, does is that just like is that just flipping the nomenclature, or does that require a different design? I don't know. That's it's it's, it's a philosophical question. I'm not a philosopher. I don't. I'm, I'm not licensed in that, so I don't, yeah. I don't know anything about these things. No, I mean, I, I think definitely you are like when you when you sign up for this, you are definitely looking at this. I think these are conflicts that are fundamentally analyzed from the view of the strong versus the weak or the established versus the, the, the unestablished or the insurgent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think like you, you do probably, you do need to keep that in mind as you play these games. Like fire in the lake is about America's experience in Vietnam for, 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 you know, a lot of people on, on the North Vietnamese side, it was an extension of a much larger and longer conflict. I mean, like, I, I think it probably does look very different from that side, and you'd probably have a very different game. I, I, I don't think the mechanics would, would look the same, because I think you'd define the problems differently. Interesting. I, I, don't, I don't know how you default. First of all, I'm not a designer, so I don't know. Second of all, I'm not Vietnamese, so I definitely don't know. And third of all, I think that would be a fantastic thing to see how, you know, somebody who is, you know, who had North Vietnamese sort of, upbringing and 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 uh, experience of the war would design that game I, well that, i mean this is why this is why the like the expansion of like game creation tools and like the sort of merging of the global game market is so exciting mm-hmm. right is that we're going to get like there's the possibility that we will see more and more games coming right. from from these these other perspectives um has there been an insertion game i would say maybe a force more powerful meets the criteria oh my god no that's not even a game that's that's oh just, don't even start with it's me. an ideological statement. Not Goop to started it. Like he designed it. That guy's a genius. Yeah, don't I, even start I, with me. I don't. I don't disagree. I mean, I think. I, I mean, okay, agree. the game kind of sucks. Anand as a genius doesn't mean he can't make ideological statements. It's kind of okay, but but I think it's an insurgent. I think it's an insurgent game. Okay. I mean, that game is fundamentally about the work of creating an insurgent power base versus an established. Uh, oppressive system. Why does the system have to be oppressive? I more mean it as coercive power. That's that's kind of what I mean, right? Is that this is, whether or not you define the system as being inherently corrupt or evil, a force more powerful is that the force that's more powerful is more powerful than the state's ability to coerce obedience from its citizens. 
So how do you how do you how do you work how do you create enough soft power that you're able to slowly like undermine the hard power of the state? Feel the burn, Rob. Feel the burn. Well, I don't think. Okay, I think that's that's. I'm not sure that's quite. I, that's a bit of far afield. Uh, but anyway. So overall, I think this has been a very successful wargaming weekend. Uh, but I, but I will say, you know, as as exciting as the coin series was, and I am eager to play uh, Fire in the Lake again, and I am eager to play more games in the series. Here's the thing: I admired it, I respected it, and I was excited by the ideas in it. I would play Triumph and Tragedy like immediately right now. If we finish the show, and you were like. Triumph and Tragedy, I'd be like, let's find a third. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Like, I feel like coin games that would require a little more, a little more rallying of you know effort to, to get behind. You know why? Because it's more complex. Yeah, that's the only reason. I mean, I a little, yeah. I'm when I the first time I played Fire in the Lake, I was like, play me Fire in the Lake again now. Yeah. And the Abyss. I think the coin games, the coin games are every bit as brilliant as the sort of the game system's reputation is and uh you know everybody that's everybody that's i I mentioned this in my in my wild weasel podcast recently which is that every single one of these games has uh has a different sort of relationship of the of the sides uh a different way in which you need to play the uh you know the 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 coin side versus the insurgents um but the um the game does require the game does require sort of a a change in your understanding of how to play and it requires a really kind of a, a, a mental psychological intellectual investment um i think that for all its for all its hooks and and triumph and tragedy i agree i mean once again craig basink he is I, I tweeted this out earlier. I think Craig Basink is one of the impressionists of game design. He uses these very abstract systems to get kind of at the at at the thing that they that it, that it is, right? It's the the sense of World War II in Europe. However you get there, Craig Basink has put the stuff that's all sort of vague and abstract and made you get the feeling of the thing that you're doing. Um but uh, I don't think that the uh, that the increased investment in coin is you know poorly spent. So you know I'm I'm more of a hardcore war gamer. Mm-hmm. I really like the I, I like complex systems. I'm very interested in the coin system in general. Um, I would play you know if we if you said okay you know what we're gonna stay up all night and we're gonna play the Dark Valley. I would say, fine, let's lift up the, the plexi, slide under there, we'll learn, we'll play, you know, we'll learn it, do all this stuff. Um, it's, it's different things that appeal to different gamers. I think that I, I, I sort of get the sense from you that you really like this, this, this very um, more, cl- this cleaner system than the more complex, uh, detailed, little futzy fiddly yeah. things that's fine and that there's there's absolutely no problem with that bill abner introduced me to the concept of board game administration and i think it's a useful concept and i think like the more administration probably the 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 harder it is for me to stay invested in the game uh that said like 
I suspect as I played more coin games, I'd get more familiar with that system, and it would yeah. it would flow a bit better. Uh, but I do love that. I do love that impressionistic uh, versus uh, realist uh, dichotomy you, you established earlier because you you were juxtaposing um, Triumph and Tragedy and uh, and, and Basink's uh, approach to game design. Well, Basink is so Basink and in, in, in Triumph and Tragedy and Romulan Desert versus uh, Kim Kanger. Kim Kanger, yes, exactly, and Dien Bien Phu and uh, Final Gamble and Tonkin. Um, I think that these are two designers that I feel are really at the sort of at the top of their game when they do the things that they know how to do. Kim Kanger knows how to tell a story about a thing with 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 mechanics that tell you, look, this is how it happened and feel how the story unfolded. Play play the book, but maybe there'll be a different ending. Craig Basink says, you know that story that there was? Let's put it together with these things. And maybe it'll come out differently. But you'll feel like you're there. You'll feel, yeah. you'll feel the, the essence of it is here. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's the difference between like reliving something or being a part of it. Exactly. As it yes. Yes. yes exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So I think that, so both of the, I think, I think, so... Uh, Kim Kanger, I'm I'm sort of a fanboy of Kim Kanger. I think that he's uh, just because of the, because of the, what he said, what he does in gaming really touches a thing that I'm looking for, and so I, I I'm I I'm such a huge fan of his. I can't wait for his Nemesis game about Burma, um, and Craig Basink. You know, it, it's so great that a game that I played Rommel in the Desert thirty years over thirty years ago, and the designer comes out with another game. In the same vein, about a completely different topic, and it once again grabs me so so strongly. That's 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 the hallmark of somebody who really is is an accomplished designer. I mean, I think these 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 two designers, Kim and Craig, have have a gift that I I urge people who enjoy this kind of gaming to to share to buy and share this this uh, this experience. I, I yeah. if the 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 hobby that we have really uh is advanced by by guys like this uh i think that's a good place to leave it uh, i will say like it, this is a this is a, i'm glad the show comes up now because for me it feels like a decent companion piece to the show we did in the wake of rabbit con uh mm-hmm. with, with dave heron yes. and julian murdoch party games uh we were talking about yeah like sort of the, the the new form yeah the, the sort of the new form party game i guess for three moves ahead uh listener or host uh but because I was sort of looking for that, I was looking for that game that could seat multiple people, right? Mm-hmm. That could be involving not not a two sided game that was sort of hacked together to right. seat four, but something that actually had like a three or four sided system. And I feel like this weekend I sort of got this glimpse of like a new for like a new a new paradigm in wargaming, let's mm-hmm. say, uh, where suddenly it's not just you know red versus blue. It's right. it's something more complicated, sure. more interesting, and more engaging for yep. more people. Yep. Uh, so it was a it was a perfect weekend, and uh, thank you very much for for hosting it. Well, first. thank you for coming, and uh, thanks to the listeners for listening. Um, and I encourage you guys to uh, if you have anybody that you can play these games with. Um, Triumph and Tragedy is certainly the more uh, accessible game, I think, probably. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, they're both great games, Fire in the Lake, Volko um, and, and Mark, and, and, and Triumph and Tragedy by Craig. Uh, the the game game design, and I just want to make this one point. We're going to end this, this podcast here, but um, game design 
has come so far and war games have been so uh so influenced and i think i mean i i this is my speculation because i'm not a designer but i think these designers have seen how mechanics from different uh things like euros and 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 uh and and modern game design how how things work and i think we really are in a in a in a situation where we're just getting amazing game after amazing game released and uh i i wish i could play them all i'm going to try to at some point uh, maybe maybe take me a few years but uh, i'm just i'm just so i'm just so pleased at all the great games that i get a chance i sit down with these things and uh they all they all touch a different uh a touch a different nerve but it's all just such a pleasurable experience all right that will do it for this week's show uh as always three moves ahead is hosted on idlethumbs.net and is produced by michael hermes we'll be back next week with another episode of three moves ahead perhaps that long-awaited uh north atlantic yeah uh, no it's uh, called atlantic fleet atlantic fleet uh that's right but yes uh perhaps the long-awaited atlantic fleet episode sure. and uh, a discussion of that and the that? the problems of naval wargaming uh yeah. as as we revisit it uh but until then uh this is rob zachney for bruce garrick good night good night